Hey everyone, welcome back to Roll for Enterprise. Just some housekeeping before we get started because it's a while since we've done this. Uh, so the three of us, uh, Dominic speaking to you, I work for MongoDB and we have a Twitter account and a LinkedIn page that you can follow to get updates on the show when new episodes are published and to send interesting news tidbits and recommendations our way. We will put both of those in the show notes as well so you can get to those links. Uh, Zach and Mike, why don't you reintroduce yourselves to the listeners very quickly? Thank you, Dominic. Hey, everybody. This is Zach Zolokakis. I myself work for a startup, Abstra, in the data center space focused around uh, day zero automation and uh, closed loop validation of everything from day zero through day two. Um, I, like Dominic said, we have a Twitter and a LinkedIn page for Roll for Enterprise. You know, please follow us there and interact with us, engage with us. If you have any questions or you disagree with what we say or you agree with what we say, please share that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's my intro. Thank you, Dominic. No, no one really disagrees with us, uh, Zach. That, that's the key part. Uh, this is Mike Iannero. I uh, work for an industrial uh, manufacturer. Um, I am on the other side from these gentlemen uh, working in enterprise IT uh, for a company whose primary business isn't IT. Uh, so a bit of a different perspective. And again, uh, maybe a perspective based more on reality, as I like to call it. But Remains to be seen, depending on the product, on the subject matter. Exactly. We like to think that's, that that different perspective that we have between the three of us is what makes this interesting. But uh, by all means, write in and let us know. But in particular, if you go all the way back to episode three, we dove into exactly that point, how it's different, which side of the table you sit on, if you're a vendor, if you're a practitioner, if you're an analyst, uh, what those realities look like, because often people have some funny ideas about what the world looks like for other people, and that can drive some uh, mistaken reactions and presumptions. But moving on to the news of the week, uh, what piqued my attention was the news of the acquisition of Chef uh, by Progress. If you're not familiar with Chef, they are one of the the big DevOps automation tools. Uh, many people have heard of Puppet. Chef is kind of the other one. Uh, there's also you know, Salt Stack, Ansible, etc. Uh, this is particularly interesting for me because I used to work in the space back when I was at Blade Logic before that got acquired, and so I've been following uh, the space a little bit more closely, perhaps than others. Um, so it was an interesting move because Progress hasn't really been on my radar before. They own a bunch of disparate tools. And so it was kind of hard initially for me to understand exactly the rationale for buying Chef. Certainly, it seems to be in a bit of a discount. Uh, 3x revenue is not a huge multiplier. It's not particularly complementary uh, to Chef's viability as a business, perhaps. What did you guys think? Did you see something more obvious there? 3x was, yeah, maybe quite interesting. But they, they did have um, a significant run rate. I mean... And uh, right. customer retention was good. You know, I I don't quite get it. I I think um, maybe progress wants to wants to pivot, go into a space that uh, they're not into today. But to me, it's just another yeah development tool, another monitoring tool. Um, so they're trying to bring the two together, and and, and potentially they're thinking long term about uh, their existing core products and how they move into the new cloud slash software world 
where they've been mainly a, a, a hard infrastructure play, at least it, it feels like to me, and I, I could be wrong. What, what's your impression of it, Zach? I mean, come on, monitoring tools are dead. Everybody knows that, and they have to keep pace. I think this has everything to do with what you're hearing, hearing in the industry. Um, you know, I've started talking about day zero operations and how we need to think about this differently with a merging of, you know, that, that bridge from day one to day two is now taking place. And what I mean by that is these tools like uh, Chef and, and Ansible, they stopped at day one. It was point in time automation. <clears throat> what clients want right now is they want that into day two, right? They want that automation from day zero through day two. They want to validate or have insurance on that auto because automation can be bad. We all know that you can automate something a hundred times or a thousand times and it could be wrong, but they want to be able to validate that introduce reliability. I th here's my thoughts on this as far as monitoring, because I hear this a lot. Monitoring is a term we have to wipe out of vo our vocabulary. We've got 20, I've said this before, but we've got 20 years of monitoring best practices. All they are is are biased towards outages and problems, right? The thresholds, this and that. We have moved on from that in this industry. And I think that this is brilliant for progress to acquire them uh, because monitoring tools aren't viable anymore. There's just, they don't give you the proper visibility. Uh, dashboards aren't even viable or, or efficient, in my opinion. So what they're doing right now, I think, is brilliant. I think they're saying, look, everything from day zero through day two impacts, um, by the way, uh, GitOps as well as DevOps, NetOps, all this stuff starts at day zero. And uh, I've been pushing that with the analyst community. We had a launch in August, and I just, you know, not to sidetrack this, but I, uh, what we're going to market with is day zero operations. And what that means is your full life cycle. So I say all that to say this is not just monitoring. This is, I think, a bigger picture. You don't make an acquisition like this unless you have a bigger picture. I think Chef, I mean, let's say, let's be honest. I mean, three times revenue. I mean, they might have, maybe they could have got more, to be honest with you, a few years ago, four or five years ago. But I think now they realize too, with a lot of these startups that are focused on this closed loop validation, that, uh oh, you know, we, we better get ourselves in shape here. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe this marriage, um, with with WhatsApp Gold is is what they need. You know, I, I I can't tell you how often we sit in in meetings and someone brings up statistics about look look at uptimes. There's no alerts. There's no this is running great. And then the reality is that user experience is damaged. So I I think there definitely is uh, a, a change in thinking of a lot of yeah how we look at things. So I, I I would tend to agree with like monitoring is dead, but you still need a certain level of monitoring. I, I don't know your take, uh, Dominic, there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing people jumped on is, oh, they own WhatsApp Gold, so you connect those two and you've got something because you can react automatically to monitoring events. But I Sorry, I was a, I was a bit shocked that people still used WhatsApp Gold. So let let's uh, I, I was surprised. <laughs> oh my god, me too. Oh, hey, plus plus one on that one. <laughs> I can guarantee you, it is still very much out there. And a slight sidebar: as WhatsApp, many people confuse it with WhatsApp, uh, which is a surprisingly you know <laughs> a surprisingly widely adopted tool for notifications people are living in their whatsapp channels on their phones and I, no 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 <laughs> anyway um but yeah the reason i was disappointed was a that's no longer how we do things and monitoring has a place but the conversation has moved on as you say to observability and trying to understand business impacts and things like that rather than focusing on infrastructure events but it also wasn't the most interesting part of Chef. Was the, I, the interesting part to me is a component they call InSpec, which is a compliance engine, effectively. 
uh, oversimplifying wildly, but it lets you specify the desired state for your infrastructure and give you a report in plain English uh, about any differences between desired state and actual state, plus give you the automation capability to go and remediate and correct those differences, which sounded far more interesting uh, to me in terms of uh, an offering. And I mean, some people would say even that is kind of old hat because surely everything's happening in the cloud these days. But as we've said before, I mean, while a lot of the growth is in the cloud, in absolute numbers, the cloud is still a relatively small proportion of enterprise IT. And there's lots of IT that needs to be automated, that needs to be managed, that people need to produce docs for the auditors about. And this seems to me like the most interesting, the most uh, you know future-aware uh, part of uh, Chef's business. And it remains to be seen because that's a less obvious synergy with some of the other bits and pieces that progress brings to the table. You, you just said something there, Dominic. You were talking about the acquisition and... Um... Yeah, the you know the yeah the inspect piece, and that's the validation piece, and I think that's the piece that's missing in a lot of this, right? So how do you continually validate that? That's the piece that goes into day two. That, and I'm with Mike. I'm kind of surprised that people still run what's up gold, but uh, but you know that's the piece that they're missing, and they I think they realize they have a potential there because if they don't, they're in trouble. I mean this this whole this whole market has evolved, and it's evolved quickly. And we're going to talk about some of this, some of the other things here, but we've talked in the past about low code, no code and the business. And what are they looking for? And you got to think about them and all of this, right? Right now we're thinking with our IT hats on, but if you have your business hat on and Mike, I'd love your thoughts on this. You probably say to yourself, well, I love that idea, right? Uh, Automate, but also validate and do it from day zero through day two or continually do it during day two. That's, that's powerful for the business. Mike, what do you think? It, It definitely is. And I, you know what what has happened here is it's it's a shift from we're having a discussion with infrastructure people to now we're having a discussion with the application people and i think this is the continuation of of software eating the world right so as you look at these products these products are really starting to focus on what are we doing for the developer and that's what i see chef there are a lot of competitors right i think you 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 named a bunch of them zach or, or earlier on there are a lot of competitors they all do something a little different what you know like if you tell me what burns my stomach in this whole announcement it's like they go over like the list of of uh, companies using using chef and there's some pretty big names in there you could you could look at it and and say like wow if they're using it I should use it but to be honest people are pretty accommodating to developers uh so I would assume that you know the products that you mentioned Zach I would assume that some companies are probably using all of them to accommodate their developers because it is pretty much an extension of development tools that they're using. I, I don't know if you guys see it the same or not, but that, that's the way I feel about it. So I don't know how widespread it is within an organization, but just one of the tools or one of the capabilities they start to to give their developers, right? And, and, and this acquisition is all about getting that foothold and expanding it and starting to listen. And, and maybe because of their past, they have that understanding of those businesses to extend and and build a better product, right? Yeah, and I mean, Chef was always of all of that crop. It was always the more developer-oriented automation tool. So it does have slightly better positioning, perhaps, uh, to be able to fit into that new world. Um, But I agree, it seems a little bit off. Uh, But um, maybe that's why it's only a 3x valuation with the... Uh, the long-term value isn't obvious to anyone else either. 
No, is there a player in the space that maybe we don't know about that that potentially is a threat to all of these? I mean, I I don't maybe I don't see it, but maybe we're not thinking about that, right? Well, I would argue the threat is the cloud. I mean, if you are running all of your infrastructure, or rather, if you're not running any infrastructure, if you're doing everything through SaaS and PaaS, uh, then you don't need a chef. Then the market for these automation tools becomes restricted to the providers uh, of those tools who do need to manage infrastructure because you know the cloud is just somebody else's computer. But from the point of view of an end user, you don't get to touch it. You don't get a login shell. And so you don't need a, a chef to automate that. Uh, that is the long-term threat. As I said, I don't think we're there yet, uh, but it's certainly where the growth of the market is. Well, I mean, come on, the cloud has some weaknesses. You're right. I, I think the cloud is pushing this operational um, you know, simplicity and this whole new operational model. I do agree with that. I think we've needed that. The cloud has forced that, has forced people's hands, and they force them to think differently. But I... I think this, uh, what I call it out of desperation. Yeah, probably three times revenues. I can, yeah, I can say that probably so, but I also think there is a vision here and there's, you know, there's a chance at, at, at doing something here to help them uh, remain viable, but uh, make no doubt about it. People want this on-prem, but there's this, but the threat here for them is uh, this, all these new technologies. Um, you know, I'm not, no, I'll do a, a shameless plug here of intent-based networking. You can call it what you want, but it's really around that validation of everything and automation. And, and there's different ways of doing this. And you bring up a good point too, Dominic. I mean, there's uh, the developer side of this is changing quickly. I mean, just really quick, really fast. So how do we, how do we grab onto that? So. So that's a nice transition to the second topic that we had lined up for this week. And because I think they do speak to each other very closely which is uh, citizen developers, low code, no code. Uh, so this is a recurring topic. We first talked about this in episode six, uh, what happened to the developers. But it's back in the news again, uh, a couple of news items that's, uh, that popped up, uh, talking about things like out systems, talking about some of the Google Cloud announcements from their Google Cloud Next uh, event uh, in just last month, uh, where they announced the acquisition of AppSheet. So, and all these tools like Airtable and whatnot. So again, if someone is developing what is to all intents and purposes, a business application with a bunch of logic uh, going on, data inputs and outputs, but they're doing it at that level of abstraction from the stack, then the value, the relevance of a chef to them is going to be limited. The conversation is between IT and business, yes, as Mike was saying, but even the IT people uh, at a level of abstraction from the servers, from the network, from the routers, that uh, they wouldn't have been even just a couple of years ago. And th- those citizen developers, what's what's really kind of, I wouldn't say scary, but what's interesting about this picture is that if they might be able to build more business-relevant apps with business-relevant features and, and a, a perspective that is completely different from what you would get from a pure... Um, pure developer. Now, yeah, we go through requirements gathering and all that, and and you understand it, but they have that ground floor understanding of what's happening in the business itself. You know, and and these companies that you see, like what we've just spoken about, uh, like, don't you find it awkward that most of the solutions and most of the, a lot of these startups we're seeing, tools we're seeing, is based towards IT and not towards the business users. And those business users are where most of the, um, you know, 
the dollars are for them to capture. And if you're still talking to the wrong people, that's a problem because I think the the rise of the citizen developer is is just going to continue. And the more you empower them, the more they will go. Now, you could argue, is it really development? Is it customization? But either way, I think it starts with customization ends up in development. So it, it's a change in workforce. It's a change in, in thinking. And, and potentially that's uh, what's driving some of the these companies to crumble or or be afraid that it's 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 a diminishing market that they're in. I mean, didn't we just touch on this? I think Dominic touched on it. This is probably why we're seeing this three time valuation. I think you're going to see more of these desperation uh, acquisitions and, and people can argue with me and disagree, but that's truly what this is in, in essence. And so I, I think that's probably why you're seeing this and this whole citizen development. We have to. I think it's all about perspective. So from our perspective, myself included, and, and I've been an analyst, I mean, we have these these IT lenses on. We think from an, from an IT perspective, perhaps if we go to a healthcare institution and we talk to the radiology department or we go to, you know, a manufacturing, right? We talk to someone in, in the line of business there, they might say, oh, no, no, we, we're already down this road and their perspective will be different. But Mike, I, I, I agree with you. I think this might be moving, not might, this is moving faster than we realize. We just don't see that, or at least the general IT population doesn't quite see that yet. Yeah, I mean, the IT view of integration with the business world has been a process of requirements gathering. We sit down with the business people, we listen to what they need. Then we go off uh, somewhere else. We build something, we code something up, and we return with a more or less finished product. If we're lucky, if there's time, there'll be a user acceptance testing phase where we validate that the thing we built really does satisfy that need, but ultimately there's that disconnect. And part of that had to be there because it was so complex to develop uh, something, something enterprise scale especially, that it wasn't feasible to expect uh, business users, people outside the IT world, the IT career path to have those skills. But partly it was also just an attitude thing. So... The positive is that these new tools are enabling that. So the sorts of business tools that would previously get built um, you know, under the radar as an Excel spreadsheet or a Google Sheet more probably these days, a tool like Airtable or AppSheet takes that to the next level. It's just one or two clicks more complex, more powerful than a spreadsheet, but it gives a lot more capability to someone who's already comfortable with that level of coding. And the old joke was always, you know, who's the biggest player in business intelligence? It's Microsoft, because they have Excel. <laughs> but the, <laughs> yeah, true, the, true, true. the flip side of that, though, is that there's a risk that because IT, generalizing wildly once again, has not engaged productively with these users, that uh, we also won't, as an industry, support them properly. And going back to what you were saying, Zach, about day zero, day one, day two, it's easy to build something, to get something off the ground, to do the hello world. Many of these tools, they kind of bypass that. You don't even have to do a hello world. You can jump right in and start building your tool. So you're, you're at day one. What happens at day two? How do you maintain it how do you update it how do you track bugs how do you do all of those things right now all of the techniques that we have to do that all of the tools that we have to do that just the awareness of the the need for such a process is very you know deep nerd magic from the point of view of an outsider uh, you wouldn't necessarily think of it 
That, that's a bit the typical kind of IT response, right? It's like uh, you're developing something and, you know, you're not using the proper, you know, methodologies, governance, what, what, however you want to call it, whatever process you, you have. And I think we always want to go in there and correct these people. But you need to realize as well, the people coming into the workforce, they've been coding for a long time, right? I, I think kids today in school start coding earlier. I think code.org has like a, a bunch of coding programs. They're, they're, they're pushing it and it's becoming just a, a role in every job, right? So I, I think the maturity of these people will, will continue to increase and will continue to cover a, a lot of those, um, uh, those aspects because it will change. So yeah, I, I think IT is at fault, but I think it's it's more like IT sleeping at the switch, not not even not even listening. It's just I think a lot of IT departments don't know this is happening. To be honest, right, isn't, right, isn't right. this like cloud? Isn't this like <laughs> cloud? We can go back. Yeah. We can go back ten <laughs> yeah. years and we replay this. We can just hit record right now and play it back ten years ago, and it's the same thing. You're right. There you go. We're future proofed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're right. We're moving these bottlenecks. Right. I mean, just. This is funny, Mike, because yeah, this is this is you know what's new, what's old is new again, and I think that's what we're seeing here. And this is part of that next revolution, and this is going to impact a lot of people. But I like that point about the education. Uh, there's the assumption that the path into into IT is coming through hardware. Uh, you know, many of my peers at university, uh, when I studied computing science back in the last millennium. Uh, we got into it because we messed around with hardware. Uh, we built gaming computers. We started debugging hardware and understanding the internals of operating systems. Then we made the jump to Linux and we started understanding uh, how that works and networking and so on. And that was kind of the path that we got into. The desktop hardware moved to being server hardware in a data center and, and, and. These it days, was electronics. It was electronics, right? Electronics right. started that journey. Yeah, absolutely agree. Right. And these days, people start from a higher level of abstraction. They, they never get down to that level. They get started with laptops that are sealed up and glued shut. Uh, their gaming is on consoles, if it happens at all, if it's not just on a mobile device. And so when they get into this, it's from the point of view of, okay, I'm going to spin up uh, an API endpoint and start messing around. Uh, my eldest is playing with Scratch. He's building some stuff with uh, with that sort of semi-graphical programming language uh, from MIT. And he has no conception of you know having to worry about IRQs and inputs like that. <laughs> so it's just not something that's on his radar. And unless he's forced to learn it, he probably never will. It's not something that's going to be super relevant to his life, I don't expect. So code.org tracks, this is a stat that I, I pulled yesterday, 666,000 roughly open computing jobs nationwide. And we've only had 71,000 computer science students that graduated into that workforce. So 89% of these open positions aren't filled. I mean, that is powerful, right? So this is the business, again, it's, and it's, it's not just the bottleneck of IT, but it's the bottleneck of of these skills. And by the way, Dominic, I love what you said, because this runtime abstraction, who doesn't love that? That's great. I think that's wonderful. Drag and drop visual models. I mean, this is wonderful for problem solvers. I think this is great for businesses. Now, I think it creates other things. And we haven't talked about this. And I'll tell you, there's one thing the industry is not talking about when it comes to this low code, no code, and that is back end as a service. And we're going to hear mm -hmm. more about this next year in the next two to three years. And I think we'll probably have a session on this soon. But this is I wouldn't say it's a problem 
I think it gets interesting when you talk uh, Baz back in as a service, when you talk multi-cloud and things like that. So there are hurdles, but th they'll be solved. But I think like IT departments everywhere will start to develop the groundwork for these citizen developers, these low-code, no-code uh, users to have at their fingertips, right? Build the data sets that they can access, build the components, like it, it's all gonna come, come to fruition, right? And I think this is the main part where IT will change. Yeah, when we get away from the assumption that to build a new piece of business logic, you need to get someone with a programmer or engineer in their job title. And we understand that, no, the people in Airtable or whatever are just as important, possibly more so in terms of the dollar value they bring to the enterprise. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the the other thing we need to keep in mind here, too, is the the university degree, the college degree. You're, you're starting to see a lot of companies move away from that. So a lot of people are going, you know, you talk about code.org, you could talk about Lambda School. There's a lot of coding specific programs out there today that a lot of um, employees, students are, are taking just to be relevant. So I, mm. I, I would say that's changing as well. That's something super interesting. And it's actually probably worth a whole episode as well, because I've got a number of things that's, uh, that I, you immediately triggers in my mind. So let's uh, definitely bring that back. And on that note, speaking of jobs, uh, I'm actually hiring. So I'm looking for someone to, to help me out. And this is one of those jobs that's at the intersection of that someone who needs to understand both sides. So if that sounds like you, if you have a technical background or an understanding of the tech, but you're also very focused on writing about it and explaining it to people who may not have such a deep understanding, just need to understand why they should care and why it's important, uh, then hit me up. I'll put the link to the formal job posting in the show notes, uh, but you can also reach out and ask me questions. With that, though, uh, let's get to some recommendations because I saw, Mike, you had an interesting one that I think is worth a, a quick chat in the show notes. Do you want to introduce that? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, there's this Guardian article that came out um, earlier this week, and they basically did a play on, on GPT-3 and uh, had it write an op-ed. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think to be fair to the Guardian, they really, I mean, you need to realize that they are prompting the AI and then it's it's building an, an op-ed based on what they are prompting it. And they also stitched it together. So I think there's been a lot of criticism about it because it's taking pieces and putting them together at different parts. So you, you need to take it for what it is. But there are two amazing paragraphs in this thing that I think just shows kind of uh, the power of GP3, whether you like it or not. Uh, and remember, it's prompted, right? But the mission for this op-ed is perfectly clear. I I am to convince as many humans, human beings as possible not to be afraid of me. I mean, it just goes on and on. I think it's uh, it's great. Um, there is the power to AI, a power to AI. Uh, a bit deceiving to some some readers if you don't have the the background. But I thought you know if you if you can go out there and read the Guardian article, it's uh, it's quite interesting. But do read how they how they put it together. I, I think um, it's uh, it's important for the reading. 
Yeah, I found it kind of humorous in a dark way. Uh, a little bit further down the article, humans must keep doing what they have been doing, hating and fighting each other. I will sit in the background and let them do their thing. That, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gets it gets better and better. I mean, as you read it, you're like, oh, wait a second. How, how did you prompt this? And it, it starts to open up uh, a, a way of thought about how it's, how it's coming together. Uh, we, we will definitely see more GP3 out there. And I mean, even the next revisions are just going to get better and better. So uh, we're surely down a, a, a fascinating AI journey um, in, in the coming years. So it'll get more and more interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, though, about GPT-3. There's some very breathless commentary about how uh, this is going to lead to artificial general intelligence. And it's important to understand GPT-3 doesn't understand the text that it's producing or the text that it's reading in the way that a human would. It's just keying off examples, either examples that it's given or examples that it finds on the web in order to produce text that's like human-generated text. It doesn't have the ability, you know, you can't give it a topic and say, give me 2,000 words on this topic uh, without those inputs. Um but I do like the idea. One application that I would love would be precisely that to say, you know, go read the internet and give me 500 words on why I should care about um, latest celebrity scandal du jour. <laughs> and just give me the background, give me a, the prissy without me having to go and read a ton of articles. Uh, that would it really going it, it 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 really is going to make us a, a little more efficient once it starts to contextualize and and understand and, and and build that that feedback loop to your to your point about you know what it's not going to do i think you know you got to remember the main thing that ai the tipping point is reasoning i think that reasoning is a a human behavior um it remains to be seen if ai can can replicate reasoning, but we're we're really far away from trying to understand that or or get to a point where AI is reasoning, or if we ever will get there. So, yeah, AI's been fifteen years away for the last uh, seventy years or so at this point. So <laughs> I'm not holding yeah. my breath. Uh, okay, so slightly more concrete, perhaps as. Uh, certainly on a different level. My recommendation is an article about my own employer, but that's not the reason I found it interesting. It's because it's used as an example. So one of the hardest things to do in business is disrupting yourself because disruption theory, as defined, says that all of your incentives are pointing the opposite way. So you're disrupted because you're doing the right thing, not because you're doing anything wrong. You chase the most profitable customers, the most profitable segments of the market. Someone else is coming in, going after customers that you don't care about so that you don't serve well. And sooner or later, you find that, whoops, they managed to move up markets and you've been disrupted. And But there's no point along that journey until it's far, far too late that uh, companies can, given their incentives, do something about it the only move that you can make as a company is disrupt yourself before that happens, kill your own product before someone comes and kills it for you. And so this article is a, a good rundown of how that process can look internally. And I just want to emphasize, having seen 
uh, from the inside companies fail at that transition precisely because of those incentives to keep on doing what has worked in the past because it's still working at that point until long after you've missed the wave. This is a very, very significant thing to read if you're in such an industry, if you're looking at a transition or just, you know, forwards, uh, forward planning for yourself so that you can try to recognize this type of inflection point uh, in your own future and act in time uh, to get out of the way. You, you know, I, I, I think about that and, and that's exactly why companies don't last 100 years. I mean, it's it's very rare you find a company that's been around for 100 years. It's it's probably because they, they've been disrupted at some point. Um, we do need to fix the way we evaluate and the way capital markets evaluate some of these companies for the simple reason that if you're if you want to disrupt, you are not going to make the same profits you've been making. And of course, you know, the markets always want you to make more and more money. So that gets hard. I think the only company that uh, everybody forgives for uh, sacrificing uh, today for the future is, is Amazon. And, and, and you could see how they've you know, they've turned every single every single cost they have into a business. It's like, oh, we have an IT cost. Let's build a cloud solution. Oh, logistics, it's a problem. High cost. Let's build a logistics solution and do our own logistics. I mean, they've just kind of turned it around and, and they're the only ones who get who get forgiveness for it, where um, the others, I think, are held to a, a higher standard. So it, that has to change as, as well, because everybody does. a. I, I think people are, are thinking about it more and more now as. Um, for the simple reason of, of the Amazon story. That's one of the incentives that I was mentioning that points the wrong way. You have to deal with pain from investors who are not seeing the types of returns. You have to deal with internal employees who are maybe not being compensated in the way they expected, even customers whose contracts were set up on a different basis. It's it's not an easy thing to do. So it's uh, th- that's why it's so interesting to me to analyze it. Yeah, I was going to say that the thing about Amazon is they're able to pivot so quickly, but that's because, you know, Jeff Bezos has said this many times, right, that that he sees that if they don't, they're going to be in trouble, but they are they're able to pivot and they're doing it well. And you're right, Dominic, it's time. It, it takes time. And Wall Street doesn't have patience for that. So your company is going to be in trouble, right? Nobody has patience for that. They want you to be there now, now, now. So interesting. Very good. Okay. And you had an interesting recommendation too, Zach. I did. I think everybody has gone through this. If you Google your name, you're probably going to find a picture, some social media. Everybody has these photos lingering out there, all these public photos. Um, Yeah, I'm so glad my teenage years predated social networks. So all of those photos (laughs) are safely (laughs) hidden in people's drawers, not available online. That's funny. Yes. Same here, by the way. Uh, so there, you know, there's other startups. There are startups uh, that have been out there. One in this article called Clearview that scraped billions of these photos for police state, you know, police uh, stations and and federal agencies. But now there is a software that helps people protect their online images from unauthorized facial recognition. It has over fifty thousand downloads. We will include the link to the New York Times article. But this, it, to me, was very interesting because privacy. It, we talked about it on the show. Privacy is a big concern for a lot of people. But this is called, and I may pronounce this wrong. Um, it's named after the the person who uh, wrote this, uh, Fox, um, I, I believe, F A W K E S. Um, I think, you know, if you download it, you're going to find this very interesting. It, you know, changes pixel level changes, you know, that things that you don't see from the human eye to trick facial recognition. 
but uh, they're working on a free app version. But this to me is very, very interesting. Yeah, it certainly beats tattooing yourself with dazzle camouflage or something. <laughs> yeah, Clearview AI has been, it's Clearview, right? That's that's what they're called, yeah. Uh, they, yeah. They've been in the news quite a bit. Um, there was a, a This Week in Startups episode where, where the, the founder was interviewed. I mean, they have a lot of traction. I mean, it, it, it's quite crazy. And most of the facial recognition that they've built is built on public accessible cameras. So it, it, it's, it's quite interesting as you take a look at what they've done with like tools that are out there and stitching them all together. Uh, such, a, such a powerful um, uh, tool set. But yeah, quite scary if they can start tracking you everywhere in the world just based on where you're going on public cameras. So yeah, it's, it's basically um, search, uh, searching your face everywhere. Uh, th- th- their story is, uh, is fascinating. It's something I've been, uh, I've been tracking here and there as, I, as, as more news comes out of them. But yeah, that was an interesting set of recommendations. And though we didn't plan this, um, kind of tie back to uh, they, they tie to each other pretty well. They tie to some recurring topics. Uh, but I think the, the main point here is if we want to tie it all together with a nice bow, automation is happening. If we're doing, as professionals, if we're doing a job that is a recurring task, we should figure out how to automate it ourselves because otherwise someone else out there is certainly going to figure out how to automate it for us. And then the conversation moves on to should this task be performed at all, such as massive scale facial recognition. One of the breaks on that sort of process used to be that it was just so human labor intensive. Even the the Stasi, East Germany, the uh, German Democratic Republic Secret Service had the largest domestic surveillance operation. They eventually just ran out of people they could uh, hire as informers and as employees. And that's not a problem that you can have these days. You can spin up a few more machines in the cloud and scrape a few more profiles and run some more facial recognition algorithms. And so that conversation moves up the the value stack and no longer the technology stack to, we can do this, should we? And that's a much more interesting conversation. Certainly lots more topics to cover in future episodes as I think that, you know, went off. There's so many tangents here that, uh, that, that, that we can cover. Definitely. We've got to keep ourselves ahead of the robots. That's uh, the name of the game. Exactly. Thank you all, guys. Uh, great, uh, great episode, and uh, hope to talk to you all next time. Talk to you next yeah, week. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Before we go, I wanted to remind everybody to check out our LinkedIn page, Roll for Enterprise. Uh, as well, we're on Twitter, Roll Number Four Enterprise. If you have any episode ideas, any questions, any feedback on uh, some of the discussion we have, um, drop us a line. We'll be uh, glad to engage and talk to everybody there. Thanks a lot. See you next time.